Welcome to I'm Absolutely Fine, the podcast from the middle that looks at all the glamour and indignity of being a grown-up. Hello everybody, I'm Annabelle and I'm absolutely fine, but this is neither a noble nor um, a courageous problem to have. But I have become increasingly and genuinely scared of my greater. (laughs) I'll do almost anything to avoid grating. Like I developed over Christmas and New Year a sort of passion for ginger tea and I don't mean like ginger tea bags I mean like fiery the way to make ginger tea is to grate the ginger and then put it on a rolling boil don't want it to infuse a rolling vicious boil for five minutes on the stove but I don't want to grate the ginger so I sort of <laughs> put it on a vicious roll. but it's great big chunks it doesn't have the same effect I buy ready grated cheese I'll do almost you know whenever it says you know you know grate your carrot no I'd really rather not <laughs> there is something really like scary about that moment when you feel like you might actually just take the At skin any off your moment, hand. And it will be a knuckle. Yes. And I used to be braver and I used to get the cheese down to a nub. And now if I do great cheese, I mean, I'm, you know, I, I, when there's still a great brick of it left, no, no, my knuckles must go nowhere near that weapon of mass destruction, that I, instrument of torture. I often think when I'm grating cheese that there must be a better way. But there you go. Answers on a postcard, please. <laughs> yes, exactly. Is there a better way? Well, um, hi, I'm Emily. I'm absolutely fine. But it turns out I'm addicted to caffeine. It does, not only, it? not only that, but but I'm also incompetent without it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does turn out that you are. So the other day I had to do blood tests and so therefore I had to not drink any tea for... 24 hours. We should say at this point that Emily isn't allowed coffee. <laughs> yes, yes. She once had a cup of coffee before a meeting that we were both in probably 20 years ago and, and was instructed never to drink coffee yeah. again. We talk about swivel-eyed loom. No, it makes me crazy. Anyway, tea has been my crutch. and Many, uh, many, many teas. Many, many teas. And so I didn't have, by about 11 o'clock... It was like I had no bones. Well, I thought you were coming down with it. I work out your eyes had gone cloudy, all the colour had drained from your face. And also, it was, it was one of those really strange occasions. I'd slept the night before. Yeah, so you were, like, turbocharged, high-powered, as I slumped more and more and more, feeling more useless and incompetent than, than normal. And it was just... It was an absolute nightmare. I mean, you had to knock off early. I had to knock off early. I fell asleep fully clothed on the sofa at five and then again at eight o'clock. And I... I I was like, what is going on? And then I realised that it was because I hadn't drunk any tea. And anyway, I was never be more grateful to take my Yorkshire tea bag. You see, a lot first of people in the morning. would take that as information that they should stop drinking tea. I'm so glad that you dived back into it. It's your only, it, it's genuinely your only vice. I was so traumatised by how unbelievably useless I was. Is tea a vice? <laughs> well, please. Pathetic how small our I'm so rock and roll lives pure. have become. Anyway, regular listeners will know that we often slip the patriarchy into the conversation around what holds us back. From diet culture keeping us hungry while feeding our self-loathing, to medical misogyny, to the tensile pressure on heavy office doors that are only stress-tested by big burly builders and therefore really hard for our lady arms. So it's a privilege, really, to introduce our next guest, who has smashed through many a ceiling and is still busy opening lots of doors for women. Sahar Hashimi brought coffee as we know it to the UK in 1995 when she founded Coffee Republic, three years before Starbucks landed on our shores. And within five years, they went from zero coffee shops to 110. Now, for the past couple of years, she's been putting her considerable energy into spotlighting women-owned businesses with her Buy Women Built movement, asking the question, why do we only hear about the men? 
Did you know that a staggering 81% of 11 to 18 year olds are unable to name one single female entrepreneur? She's out to change all that. We are thrilled to have her here. Sahar, how are you? Well, hello, Annabelle and Emily. I'm absolutely fine. But um, I don't know what is wrong with me, but I just wake up with like literally like I'm not grinding my teeth, but just really clenching my teeth when I wake up in the morning. And it's like almost like just looks insane. I, I don't know what I'm doing at night to just just wake up. Literally, they're like attached to each other. My, my teeth. Lockjaw. Yeah, it just it literally like lock. My teeth are locked together. And I was just been researching it all weekend, thinking there must be a solution. And um, there was like, apparently you can Botox your masseter, which is like that big muscle. And I'm really scared to actually Botox my jaw in case I can't speak. But apparently even dentists do it. So I'm like about to, after this, go and find a dentist that will Botox my jaw. To <laughs> Any release... excuse for more Botox, right? Do you, you have, have to absolutely... stick it everywhere? Do you have to prise your mouth open? Like... Yeah, I mean, literally, I swear to God, I wake up and I can't even imagine. It's like a sort of, it's like the sort of Tom and Jerry, like electrocuted. Like, do I mean, it's like a, as if I'd been electrocuted exactly. At night, I don't know what that is. I, I wish there was like a muscle relaxant I could take when I sleep. I, I don't know what it is, really. Well, I believe there so, are, but I don't know if we should go down that path. <laughs> I was thinking, actually, um, about Michael Jackson taking propofol at night to sleep. I'm just like virtue of being anaesthetized every night. Like, like. <laughs> yeah, there's your future. <laughs> exactly. Let's rewind a bit and talk about your past. So it's the early 90s. You're a lawyer. And what happened? Did you just... Go to New York and have a cup of coffee? Um, yeah, well, I mean, I was a lawyer and I'd been working for five years and increasingly a sort of unhappy lawyer. I sort of, I loved the training and stuff, but once I qualified, I sort of felt really unhappy kind of going to the city every day. And to be honest, I could feel everyone else was sort of shining and doing really well and thriving, the people I started with. And I could feel I was sort of slipping behind. And I just wasn't enjoying it. I think I was doing a pretty crap job at it. So there was this sort of discontent, literally, like sitting over me in, in, in the career I'd chosen. Um, exactly. And then it was this one trip. I went to visit my brother Bobby in New York and woke up with jet lag and literally came across skinny lattes for the first time in my life. I sort of couldn't believe I was given an option of what kind of milk to have in my latte. Because here it was really, you know, when I was a kid, it was Nescafe, you know, it was it was built as coffee, or it was like terrifying espresso. Exactly, yeah. Or you'd sort of go to a sort of sandwich bar and then they'd just give you this sort of, you remind me, this like horrible coffee in those polystyrene cups. Yeah. So really sort of horrible experience. Or the office coffee machine, often you guys remember? Exactly, that was what yes, I was Yes, with the of, filters yeah. and the great big thing. And, they, and that always made you feel sick. And, and you drink. Always made you feel yeah, sick. You'd exactly. have no so breakfast I, and drink um, four cups of that and then wonder why you felt insane. I know, I remember doing work experience or being interns at that point, having to, learning to, how to make the coffee machine work was like sort of the most important thing, that and the fax machine. Yeah. And do you remember that all offices smelt of that coffee? Yes, they do. You knew you were in a corporate environment because that was the kind of tell. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And it was always burnt coffee, that sort of awful smell. And I really fell in love with this. And they had these wonderful sort of muffins and biscotti jars. So, so the ritual around it as well. So not just yeah. the, the coffee, but the sort of idea that you could have treats. Exactly. And I, it was actually the idea that you could leave the house in the morning and start your morning in this buzzy place all about coffee, which we didn't really have. So, you know, you could smell the coffee machine. You could smell the coffee grinding. You could hear the coffee machine. Everyone's getting their coffee. You know, we used to have sort of sandwich bars. N nowhere, you know, in that Italian sense of coffee. But, you know, I saw it in New York for the first time. And, and also in London. I mean, God forbid someone should be nice to you before 10 a.m. <laughs> someone yeah, exactly. would smile and say, what would I like, rather than throwing <laughs> some boiling liquid at you. 
Also, we were definitely fetishizing coffee anyway, weren't we? Because we had those sort of Nescafe ads where like, hey, would you like to come over for a coffee? So yes, exactly. we were very much like coffees in our home, but not yeah, outside. Yeah, I remember the phrase. It was that you, that, you remember that, like, that Nescafe gold blend sex ad? Will they, won't they? Oh, that's right. And, it was, and she used to go, mmm, lovely coffee. <laughs> And so, also, don't remember the Friends was was sort of starting at that time. And do you remember the what was it called? Central the, Park, the, exactly. Central Park, and they got together in Central Park, and that was almost like the kind of genesis of the coffee bars because they sort of invented that really before even the American coffee bar concept started. Yes. Hanging out in Central Park. Yeah, yeah, and there was and there was sex in there, wasn't there? If you want to sell, yeah. you use sex, and that was all about you know. Do you remember Gunter? Yes, goodness just me, following Rachel around. So, okay, so you, so, but you know, what sort of person who's just a sort of young, slightly unhappy lawyer thinks, hmm, that was a nice experience. I'm now going to take this entire, entire experience across the Atlantic. Yeah, I'm a sad solicitor. Here, I'm, I'm, I'm going to build an empire. I remember just getting back to London and I was sitting with my mum and my brother Bobby in a Thai restaurant off the King's Road. And I just remember very casually saying, um, to them, oh God, you know, back at, back at home now. I was actually looking for, for an in-house job at that time. So I was going for interviews and I was like, I can't believe we haven't got those American style coffee bars. I wish I could leave the house every morning and I'm not stuck at home with the sort of last nights washing up, making myself Nescafe with boiling water. I wish we had those American coffee bars. Like I really miss going somewhere in the morning, leaving the house and having a ritual. And that's where actually Bobby, my brother, got the old light bulb. And, you know, he'd heard about Starbucks and his, you know, he said, listen, I can't believe you've said this. This is a great concept. We should bring it over. And to be honest, I was having none of it because I kind of thought I was a consumer. So I couldn't understand why I had to provide a solution to my own problem. <laughs> so, you know, for me, like, you know, other people open coffee bars, right? Like, you never have to, like, scratch your own itch. I never thought that is the kind of beginning of an entrepreneurial journey, scratching your own itch. So I wasn't having none of it because I was like, I'm going to wait for other people who open coffee bars, that whole sort of tribe out there, to do it. It's, it's not me, you know. And But anyway, Bobby was having none of it, and he basically paid me paid me to do research for one week. <laughs> and I literally got a check from him because you, you guys might be too young to remember, but we used to carry our checkbooks around with us everywhere. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> and I, I carried, I basically took a check off him to do one week's research because I was actually had no intention of starting a business. I was actually insulted. And also, it's, only, it's, you know, it's because it's your brother. You're like, you're such an idiot. Fine, pay me. Exactly, <laughs> literally, pay me. And that's like my Sibling hourly economics. rate as a lawyer. Exactly. Yeah. He very much, which is what I wrote in, in my book, Anyone Can Do It, sort of guided me through every step. So it was like, okay, you know, go and do research for a day. And I got on the circle line and my research was sort of getting off at every single of the stops on the circle line to see what there was. And I came home that night and I was like, ooh, there doesn't seem to be anything like it. And it literally taking it kind of one day at a time, sort of now realizing with that sort of mindfulness journey, not thinking I'm going to do this, just like, okay, today's fine tomorrow. And, you know, I didn't have a job then, so it was occupying me. And next thing you know, you sort of, do one day at a time until you look back and you're like, oh, I'm kind of quite quite a long way along this journey. Mm. It's interesting that, isn't it, that you don't have to start it. I think people, one of the reasons people don't start, I think, is because they think they're meant to start every project with a vision for world domination. Mm. Um, but, but you're saying that that is not, not at all what happened. Absolutely. And like, funny enough, you know, one of, one of the observations I was thinking in bed this morning, that actually dreaming big is one of the worst pieces of advice you can give to a young person to dream big. Because it's sort of when you dream big, it's like too big to even start. 
and you're almost like paralyzed by the kind of sheer scale of what you need to do. And then you sort of not do it, just thinking it's a dream. And that that's so, you know, whereas I would just say don't overthink, just start doing something, anything. And then eventually the path kind of finds itself. And that, that's what we did. I didn't think too much about it. I was just putting one step in front of the other the next day, you know, do market research and then you know, thought this makes sense. I went back to New York to the same coffee bar before Google days, took pictures of that, made a little album, um, you know, came back and sort of, I remember people kept saying to us, it's crazy, like you're opening a coffee bar, you don't even know anything about coffee. And they were like, people always trying to poke holes, right, when you start something. Mm. Um, and they're always trying to kind of almost tell you why you shouldn't. And they were like, you don't know the difference between Java and Sumatra coffee. Like, what the hell are you doing? You're not a coffee specialist. Why yeah, would but- you open a coffee bar? Because the sad solicitor on her way to work in the morning doesn't either. She just knows that this is making her day better. Exactly. Absolutely. And sort of, and so, you know, but I remember thinking just to shut them up, um, Levatsa had a free training course. I remember Bobby and I went on it thinking we might learn something. And in their training course, they were going to learn. And I remember we were so excited to learn that um, it was a kind of coffee training course, coffee tasting. And we ended up having 26 espressos between the hours of nine and 11. I swear, I, I didn't realize you sort of spit it out. You don't drink when you're on a tasting. Like the whole thing is to sort of swirl it around your mouth and kind of spit it and we drank it and I literally I remember it was in Chiswick and we stopped off on the way back um on the A4 at the petrol station and I remember I said but I need to buy two Mars bars I remember I just like had thinking this is gonna like somehow absorb the caffeine that's going through my system um and your first um shop I think was in South Moulton Street right absolutely posh pedestrianized loads and loads of human traffic I mean how soon after you opened it did you think this might work not for a while actually to be honest again you know it's sort of you know the whole idea we have of overnight success like you know I you know sort of now I think there are 22,000 coffee bars like that we were the first to open so people always think you know people put too much pressure on themselves so people think oh I just opened it and it's going to be a roaring success I mean no one came in so you know when I say no one came in I would say our break even sales were 700 quid so we had to make 700 pounds of sales a day to break even and every single day we're making literally like just under 200 pounds. And when I say 200 pounds, I'm discounting my poor mum who's coming in drinking as many cappuccinos <laughs> as the poor thing could. She'd bring her friends, they'd all have cappuccinos. But still, you know, no one was coming in. So, you know, new things are always met with like rejection and we forget that, you know. So people didn't like, like coffee bars at the beginning. They were literally going to the sandwich bar next door, getting a polystyrene coffee. Um, and we did everything. I remember the first fashion week, kind of I went there, took a coffee machine that was making all this kind of like cinnamon lattes and vanilla, you know, cappuccinos for all the sort of fashion editors, try to get people's interest. But, you know, people really are resistant to change, I think. And sometimes, you know, we don't, we think it's got to be immediate, whereas, you know, new things are always rejected by consumers more than anyone else. Mm. I think it was maybe starting to happen on screen, though, at the same time. We were maybe watching American telly. And you might see Sarah Jessica Parker or someone tripping down the street in her Malone Blahniks with a cup of coffee. I think culturally, maybe things came together as well to make us interested in this. You know, this coffee is glamorous. Tea is not glamorous. Coffee is glamorous. So I wonder if that was happening as well. You know, an an element that was sort of, you know, you'd hit upon something zeitgeisty. 
Yeah, it was a bit like I see. And also, like, what's funny is we used to be in the UK such instant coffee drinkers. So I remember when I did my research, we were drinking 90% instant coffee. And yet on the continent, they were like drinking 90% real coffee. So they'd make it in the cafetiere or they go to like a. Place. And then I remember like just actually thinking like EasyJet has just started then. So we were going to Europe more. So it's almost like by osmosis, European habits were coming in as the quality coffee and not just, you know, boiling water and two scoops of Nescafe. I mean, Nescafe. Is so bad. I mean, do you guys drink Nescafe still? Or some people do, which is actually I'm really surprised by. Well, I do sometimes actually, because I'm I've slightly I, I try to limit how much caffeine. So I have um, a cup of instant decaf just in the morning. So because it's sort of hot and wet and gets me out of the house. No, really, you see that? Yeah. yeah. And then I have Sports. an oat flat white. Yeah. When I'm out, and I I don't want a coffee machine in the house because I would drink too much frothy milk. Yeah, which I love, the frothy milk, right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's the fun bit, right? Yeah, absolutely. So 200 quid a day and you're thinking, I really better start applying for those legal jobs because uh, th this is not catching on. And then what happens? Um, in the funny way, like, I wasn't even thinking of that because I was just so convinced that I wanted it myself, which is why my whole premise is, you know, you shouldn't start a business unless you're its own first customer. It's a bit like that kind of, you know, the Victor Kayam Remington, whatever it was. You know, I love the company so much. You know, I, I love the product. I bought, so I bought the company. <laughs> yeah. So I was convinced in a way. So I just, I wasn't really um, going to give up. But, you know, that persistence really, it's just best not to think about it yet again, not to navel gaze and say, you know, is this a success? Again, as women as well, you know, we just, we, we sort of, there's too much conversation going on in our heads. And if we let that take over, you know, am I doing the right thing? Am I on the right path? You know, literally, my only solution to life is just not to over, not not to think too much, just to sort of do. So again, one step after the other. You know, we tried everything to try to get people to come in. You know, we did like you know promotions with Gap. We did delivery, which was a nightmare doing coffee delivery. Could you imagine? <laughs> I remember, like you know, literally, someone would want us a fourteen you know grand day lattes, and then you've got this tiny store, and there are people queuing up. You're trying to make fourteen grand day lattes off one machine to deliver before it gets cold. Nightmare. But you know, you just try a million things until eventually, I remember we opened one more store in Great Marlborough Street. I remember when we had two stores thinking, wow, it's so exciting. We're like a big chain now. You know, which one do I go to? And then slowly people stepped step saying, you know, kind of, you know, sort of, they, and then I remember we opened Fleet Street where Goldman Sachs and everyone was and there were like queues around the corner. And that was an amazing feeling. That was, that was like an amazing feeling, actually. I remember that. And I remember you, you became a kind of thing. Yeah. You know, we worked on the magazines. You were in the magazines. Absolutely. People really, you know, gave a shit. The reason why, you know, I very much put my own story forward was I remember thinking I was hearing Starbucks was about to come. And I remember speaking to PR people and they were like, yeah, well, it's difficult to kind of talk about brands saying why Coffee Republic's better than Starbucks. And then suddenly we sort of figured that actually if I become, if me and Bobby, especially the brother and sister story, people will always remember that. They might not remember the company, but they remember the people and the story behind it and their passion. You know, that's what kind of stays with people for a long time. So we sort of put ourselves and me especially as the face of the company forward. And, and it was great fun doing it. Thanks to mm. you a lot. <laughs> this is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Now, you guys know that we're not shy about getting things off our chest. The tiny inconveniences that can ruin our days to the big, overwhelming worries that can flood our nights. Trouble is, we all got into the habit of saying, I'm absolutely fine. Emily and I added the but 
specifically to get off autopilot and give ourselves the space to say what we were really experiencing. But we weren't always so free with our inner furies. A few years ago, I began experiencing debilitating panic attacks because I felt I couldn't tell anyone all the things that I was feeling, that I was not coping, that I felt like a failure. I was so ashamed, so I kept it all bottled inside. And of course, it started leaking out. It was only when I found a therapist and began sharing those doubts and insecurities with her that the panic began to dissipate. Because therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. With over a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise. And our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash midult. That's better. H-E-L-P dot com slash midult. Better help, because sometimes the best thing to do is acknowledge that we are not, in fact, absolutely fine. Yes. Um, and then wh- why did you decide to step away from Coffee Republic? What was the moment when you thought, you know, you have 110 shops? Yeah. Why did you decide that you were going to move on? Yeah, well, I mean, it was, it was the biggest mistake in a way, because it all happened so quickly. You know, we we're quite young, you know, and it was all really propelled. Like, my dad had died, and that was suddenly that perspective shifter whereby, and that's really when I kind of really decided to leave the law firm and think, do you know what, I just, life's too short. I've got to do something I absolutely love doing. And then like within five years, really, my dad died in 93. We opened Coffee Republic in 95. And really by 2000, um, the year 2000, we'd grown from like my mum's kitchen table to 110 stores. And suddenly the company started becoming really corporate. You know, we got all these people from big companies coming in. I remember we had the managing director of Pret, someone from Disney. And the feeling they gave you, which again, I think slightly women feel that more is, oh, you know, well done, little girl, you started the company. That was really great, you know, your whole enthusiasm and your passion. That's really lovely to start, oh, good for you. But now, you know, give it to the big boys, you know, give it to the grown-ups. Um, you can't run big companies the way you do with passion, going around store to store, you know, passion's not enough. And I very much believed in that at that time. And the company sort of changed character. I sort of felt like it wasn't the same, you know, whereby when we first opened, we were like up there with everyone, with the whole team was so entrepreneurial. Everyone's like, you know, putting the posters up, getting it all ready. It became more corporate, much more depersonalized. And I just felt really alienated from it. It was really bizarre. And the sort of feeling was, oh, you have a sell by date, you know, entrepreneurs sell. And it was came the same time as a dot-com boom. And... We sort of felt for that, that, you know, people were selling and people were like companies were valued at something. And when's your exit? Um, mm. And it was so wrong. We, we felt for that. And, and, and it was so wrong. And, and it was such a big mistake. And I felt absolutely terrible afterwards. Oh, you, re- you, re- you regretted it? Do you still yeah, regret enormously, it? enormously, Annabelle. Yeah, um, absolutely. Which is why sort of, I mean, the books I've written and the kind of consultancy I do to big companies around how to keep that startup mindset. Because, you know, for entrepreneurs, you know, what, what you do in a way is like a creative expression of what you do. So suddenly selling your company, um, I mean, they say, I've, I've studied it a lot now, and they say it's, it's very much like a bereavement because you just really love what you do. And I just remember, I said, I, I was so, I can't tell you the emptiness I felt at that time when I sold. I remember going past it, actually going to a party with a friend and we went past Coffee Republic on High Street Ken and I said, oh, look at Coffee Republic. And he said to me in the taxi, oh, it's got nothing to do with you. Don't look at it anymore. And it was literally like a dagger in my heart. 
but no one talked about that sort of thing back then. Now, you know, lots of entrepreneurs get together. There's whole network. People talk about how painful that is. Um, and But no one did. So it was slightly sort of suffering this um, by myself, not not realizing, but it was it was incredibly painful. And seeing the company, um, you know, after we left, I remember I'd still go to the stores because I loved it. And we gave it to these kind of corporate managers to run. And and they just took it to the ground, really. I mean, eight years after we left, um, I remember sitting, reading, writing my second book. And I remember hearing Coffee Republic had gone into administration um, mm. eight years afterwards. And it was just, I mean, it's just, it's like your baby, you know. Mm. So did you have any idea what you were going to do after you sold it? Um, no, I just, I remember um, I was just suddenly, you know, a lady who lunches and I don't literally just remember the, the first day where I wasn't going to the office it was four o'clock in the afternoon after one very unsatisfying lunch because I actually despise lunches um, and just oh, thought, lunches are the worst the worst right like the energy <laughs> yeah. of a lunch is just cannot be any worse than the energy of, of, a, of a lady's lunch and like a lady's dinners are the best things in the world but uh, um, and I just remember four o'clock and then just seeing some people like just aimless and thinking oh my god this is me and the sort of panic set in. And I remember um, someone called Julie Mayer had said, write a book. And I remember thinking, you know, I can't even write a thank you letter. How could I write a book? Like, <laughs> do I, mean, I can't write, you know. And um, But I remember it was then sort of September 11th happened and kind of almost like the partying stopped. And I literally closed the door for actually nine months. And I wrote, anyone can do it. Because at that time, we still had faxes. So it was the faxes between Bobby and I. And I realized, my God, like, you know, the idea I had that entrepreneurship was a special chromosome that some people had, like, you know, that was just something you're born with, is actually rubbish. And that it's like a series of steps. And actually, we're all entrepreneurs if we follow those steps. Because if a lawyer and a banker can become a kind of entrepreneur, then sort of anyone can, which is why we call it anyone can do it. So what happened to make you in 2020 want to launch a whole new initiative? Obviously, a very different kind of, I don't know if one would even call it a business, maybe one calls it a movement. But by Women Built, did you feel that women founders and women entrepreneurs weren't getting recognition? Was it about giving us a choice to spend our money on women-made products? What was it that got you thinking about putting these brands, these female-founded, female-run brands into the spotlight? Well, um, kind of, I'll just go back a kind of tiny steps on that. I've always believed in female entrepreneurship. So when I wrote my book, I actually realized that what I was using in starting a business was a lot of the feminine qualities because I could really be me starting a business, like whereby when I was a lawyer, it was like Sahar putting the work face on. And a lot of the qualities that I needed to use, like back in my personal life, you know, the resourcefulness, the networking, the chattiness, the fact that I loved, you know, having a coffee and a cake, you know, I mean, the fact that I'm a shopaholic, the fact that I love brands. And I was sort of using all these qualities, which are kind of, you know, inherently like feminine qualities in what I was doing. So I actually realized that entrepreneurship suits women particularly. So I was always in the back of my head, I'd done so I love it rather than suits women occasionally. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Yeah. It's because the feminine qualities, like genuinely, which I think qualities that used to almost make us the butt of jokes, right? Like that we used to have to hide in the workplace. So, you know, for example, multitasking, right? So, I mean, I got married quite late. Um, so I never lived in a man with a man until I was 40. And I really honestly realized <laughs> what they mean about women multitasking. Because when men do one thing, they can only do one thing, literally. I mean, 
my husband, I mean, if, if he's like making scrambled eggs, it's like he's sort of spitting the human genome. Like, it's like <laughs> one thing. And you can't disturb him while he's doing that. Whereas bless women, you know, they can do a million things. So multitasking is huge. Um, the fact that women are chatty, you know, it's all about networking. Um, our softness, we used to have to kind of keep our softness. Whereas softness is all about empathy and emotional empathy, which is why, you know, everyone needs. So all this kind of vulnerability, all these qualities are qualities that really so anyway I thought women are just incredible for for entrepreneurship they're almost like the sort of untapped advantage in entrepreneurship how can I relay this but it was just always like in the back burner thinking you know the books didn't come about and again through COVID um, you know suddenly everything quietens down so I'm free you know so that sort of freeness suddenly lets you think and I remember I I'd actually, um, not to share too much information, but I had a bunion operation. So I'm sitting there, like literally was sort of stuck at home. And I am going through my Twitter feed and I sort of have time to look through it properly. And I see this tweet and the tweet said, not all of us can invest in women, not all of us can mentor women, but we can all buy from them. And I kind of thought, you know, that's, and then was like hashtag play your part. I remember calling the person that did tweet and I said, that was really powerful what you just put because it's so true. And then I realized that I know a lot of the brands that women built because I'm in the ecosystem and I judge all the awards and stuff. But the average consumer doesn't know that we are surrounded by all these brands that actually women have built. And we don't know that. And what greater to create that connection and to almost bring sort of a sense of community activism, mm -hmm. solidarity into yeah, the buying sisterhood. process. Yeah. Sisterhood into the buying process. You know, and at the same time, all this is going on. You know, I have like so many of the young girls in my life are going through trouble because of social media, because of their sense of loneliness, identity, all about your thigh gap and your appearance. And then very soon afterward, the Sarah Everard happened and all these girls going with a candle vigil and thinking, you know, and at the back of me too, I was like, there's so much passion towards how can we really kind of create create that bonding and support fellow women. But how can we do that? I and mean, what better than buying women built? And to be honest with you, you know, I'm at a certain age, but in my bathroom, in my kitchen, it's just all women built products. And when I buy women built, when I'm putting a women built cream, when I'm shampooing my hair with absolute collagen, I feel more supported. I feel stronger because of that connection that I'm using a women-built product. So what about some younger girl who doesn't have the identity, who hasn't really found who she is? What a, what a better way than, than to give them this by telling them? But at the same time, I'd been involved with the Rose Review and our rates what, of What is the Rose Review? Yes, Rose Review is um, Alison Rose, who's the first female CEO of one of our major banks, CEO of NatWest. And she was commissioned to do the Rose Review on female entrepreneurship. And what was really important that came out was that basically um, our rates of female entrepreneurship are really terrible. So, you know, we're 30% behind America, Canada, Netherlands. And the fact that why should we care that we're so terrible? Because that's costing our economy 200 billion so if we start at the same rate as they do in America, Canada, Netherlands, another 200 billion into our economy. So this was post-COVID, everyone thinking, you know, where is it all going to come from? And so, you know, our future prosperity, you know, buying women built is going to help all our futures because it's going to help our economy. And it's like the low hanging fruit of our economy. What if we started the movement, a consumer movement to bring all these brands together and present them to consumers and identify them so consumers can sort of find them? Um, and and we sort of came up with, you know, buy women built, sort of was what it says on the tin. 
And the idea being that it would turn into like a sticker, like, you know, great taste or free trade. Like, here is your reason to put your money, point your money in this direction. Exactly. Here's your reason to put your money in this direction. Find them. This is who they are. And also, you know, I kind of found like, you know, on the breakfast table, some eight-year-old who doesn't have maybe parents who motivate her. Maybe when, you know, she sees that, that product has got the buy one built. Somewhere along the line, it's going to sort of dismantle some sort of barrier she's got in her head because lack of confidence is a huge issue. Again, that came out of Rose Review. Women have a misperceived idea that they haven't got the skills to be great entrepreneurs. And, you know, that mm. is so wrong. They've got all the skills. I remember reading a really interesting interview with Sarah Gilbert, you know, who was the, the vaccine. Yeah, and she said, she said several of the journalists had said to her, you know, what's so great about what you've done about your visibility is that, you know, my, my daughter didn't know that she could become a kind of vaccine scientist. And Sarah Gilbert, like, turns around to the journalists and she's like, what, what? it's not my job to tell, to show them. Why aren't you showing them that they can? But it is all about the idea of visibility. You can't be what you, what you can't see. Absolutely, what you can't see, exactly. Exactly. But I also think it's really layered as well in terms of, um, you know, we have been sold as women so many things about what we need. You know, Annabelle and I was joking about how, you know, men get one, an all-in-one shampoo body, whatever, and we get tiny creams that, that are for our elbow. You know, we, there's the pink tax. So everything that we that we need is, you know, exponentially more expensive. So the idea that you can... Yes, all in, against a backdrop of a thigh gap and a body clock. Exactly. Absolutely. Not to mention safety. All of that. Absolutely. So the idea that you can go to, you know, like the female gaze in cinema or whatever, or films or movie, that you can actually go to a shop and see something that you know has been created for women by women, that the thought process has been on every single detail about what we need and what make, is going to make our life easier is, is a no-brainer, and right? And they were all their own first customer, like you, Sahar. Exactly. Absolutely. I, ju- I just did a survey, actually, of the brands, which are the sort of hundred that I've got initially on this WhatsApp, um, is that, you know, 95%... What, you've got of- a WhatsApp group? Yeah, I've got a WhatsApp group of 100. Founders. Oh, my God, that must <laughs> be exhausting. And, and, and when I say exhausting, I mean, could you imagine these women? It's like they defy the speed of time. So this is all from the founders of, you know, Astrid and Mew to Little Moons to Double Dutch Spectrum, Stripe and Stare. And it's, so if, if I put a request in, like, I've got stuff arriving at my doorstep before the email even reached them. Like, I, like they're like, you know, like doggy years versus their level of efficiency and resourcefulness is just blows your mind but so I I did a survey and literally 97% of them I think said they started from a personal need you know they started the business because it was something that someone in their family lacked be it you know Joanna Jensen Charles Farm whose child had eczema you know couldn't put the right creams to Julianne Poonan of Creative Nature who has 17 allergies to Caroline Barton of Nuge Foods I don't know Nuge Foods I'm I'm in love with Um, it's these sachets like these little pouches that are like almond paste or cashew paste so if you guys like nut milk and she you know she said her fridge was too full to put in almond milk and nut milks and stuff so she's got these pouches so you literally just put the paste and mix it with water and you've got oh. the most healthy nut milk ever without any of the stabilizers and emulsifiers it's like you know what i mean just everything they come up with because she's a mom busy her fridge was too full so it's always provide exactly being your own customer you know scratching their own itch which is why it makes their product so innovative I know there's this idea, this historical idea, you know, long since disproved that hangs around that women don't think laterally, that women aren't problem solvers. Mm. Women are real life, real time problem solvers. 100%. And you're doing it the whole time. And I think the difference was, 
I don't know if you guys agree, like before we used to have that divide between what we did at work and what we did at home. And people we used always, to say that we used to have to come home and like take off our metaphorical shoulder pads and then become absolutely. who we really were. And the idea should be to kind of integrate it and be who you really are all the time. Exactly. And women are, pops, I mean, undoubtedly problem solvers in the home. And so the fact that actually now the confidence to be able to say, you know, and that's why, you know, buy one build is actually, if you're missing something, that is the genesis of an amazing business idea. Try it. Just because you're missing it, don't wait for someone else to open it. But also a lot of the time we're the consumers in the home, right? We're the ones Absolutely. who run the, 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 the sort of the household budget or whatever, and we make all the purchases. And we buy so cross-generationally. We yeah. buy for our kids, we buy for our mothers. So we the idea of, of not creating things with us in mind seems completely wild. Also, the idea of not bothering to look into what we might want also seems completely wild. But that is how it's been for yeah. years. It's been, you know, a one-way broadcast, isn't it? This is what you should do. This is what you need. This is whatever. So what do you say to women who are considering starting their own business? Gosh, um, actually, my, um, my motto in life is sort of leap and the net will appear, right? Just, just go for it. But literally, leap in that will appear, I so believe. Again, it's about not thinking. Because I always sort of say, you know, if you're at the edge of the cliff waiting to do a bungee jump or whatever, you know, it's the worst place, right? You're looking, looking at plan A, plan B, what if it goes wrong? I'd like, just just do it. And then you'll see, just just take the leap, just try it. And that's why I want people to go like to buy one belt, to see examples of women just like them who didn't know anything, who were clueless, Again, another survey I did was, were you clueless about the business you started? So the same as I was clueless about coffee and, you know, Java and Sumatra coffee. None of them had any previous experience in the area they started. They were just their own customer. And that gives you the best insight. So for me, it's, it's just go for it. You've got what it takes. So is this um, Buy Women Built label going to start appearing on the shop shelf? Um, absolutely. Exactly. We've got the first one going on... Um, th- sort of re-nourished 3D vitamins. Some people have got it on their website, but um, so far we've been sort of getting the community together and we haven't, you know, the consumer one is actually, you know, it's a very big job to get people to start choosing to buy Women Built um, to, and realising why it's so important, realising it's not just about equality, it's also about our economy. Well, I love it. We're going to see it appear everywhere and I love the fact that I can spend my money on something that was founded by someone, you know, who might be a bit like me, who maybe was thinking of someone a bit like me. You know, it's, it's, it's empowering, as you say. Yeah. What you were just saying when you wash your hair with the... What was it? Um, it was absolute, absolute collagen. collagen. Yeah, I mean, absolute collagen is amazing. Do you, have you guys even heard of absolute? Have you heard of absolute? Yeah, collagen? I have. Yeah. yeah. So like Maxime Laceby, like Emily, she was like when she turned fifty, she just got a divorce, and she realized, you know, she just didn't want to sort of not look that great. So um, she read about bone broth. So she she wanted to look better, is what I mean. Um, yeah. And she started um, she started boiling bone broth for herself, boiling sort of bones. And then people kept commenting as, oh, you know, Maxine, you, you look better. Like, what have you done or whatever? So she, she started boiling up the bones for her friends. And then they, <laughs> it's so witchy, isn't it's it? Literally. literally. It's like... I swear, and now, now she's got she a multi-million pound business and she's now moved from kind of collagen pouches to shampoo, which I use with collagen in it, which I love. And so every time I put that on, on me and then I... Do I mean, it just, it just makes such a difference. I love it. Knowing. A thousand years ago, she would have been burned at the stake. Yeah. Now she's got a million pound business. <laughs> this is progress, lady. <laughs> Absolutely true. So, um, I mean, I can't believe you've got the energy to do this. What keeps you motivated as you have to push through and push through? Gosh, I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. You know, I, I never had my own children and I've got stepchildren, but never my own children. Maybe I feel this constant push of a sense of purpose 
I, and maybe I sort of, it's, it's almost like, I find like, maybe if you haven't got one sense, your other sense gets stronger. Like, I mean, some people can't hear, like they can see better or whatever. Um, and I find with, with that, I really, I'm always looking for, um, I'm so terrorized by my own lack of purpose sometimes. Do you know I mean, I'm, I'm just worried because maybe, I, I don't know, I didn't have my own children. I, I don't know what it is, but it's just really doing something that matters and giving back and, um, changing lives it just gives me such so much fulfillment it's sort of really filling in a hole for me and that just energizes me um and of course I've got whole rituals around how to get energy so that's <laughs> like oh god oh my Bone god broth. Like, I mean cold showers love a cold shower in the morning I mean, I've just started doing that have you guys heard of the four minute Zach Bush like exercise. I remember reading um, Elle McPherson does that apparently every morning. It's a four minute, it's really easy exercise. That sort of oh, thing. Oh, like a workout? It's a workout. It's four minutes. It's amazing. And, and what does it do? Huh? <laughs> then apparently it like flushes your nitric oxide. Don't tell me why you need to flush your nitric oxide, but I'm like trying drinking the Kool-Aid. I do that. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm very like kind of huge sort of meditation exercise every evening, hot bath, you name it, guys. I'm just like, and whatever I read, I just do literally. I'm like, yeah, the ultimate sucker for the, the next, the <laughs> newest like a, trend. Do you think you're in a constant battle with your own inner sloth? I think that lots of us are never stop moving because we're so terrified that if we stop moving, that big part of us will say, you never have to move again. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And yeah, we, absolutely. We would, yeah. yeah. I think us, us women, we're sort of often... I remember just once thinking like the bit, our biggest enemy is our 19-year-old self with a sort of almost target on our back. And I think it's true, isn't it? We, we've got a target on our own back and that's what pushes us, I think, slightly. Yeah. Well, yeah. on that note, on yeah. that terrifying note, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to say, I mean, full disclosure, I've known Sahar for, we think, probably 25 years, possibly yeah. more. So it's a particular delight to have hosted her today and hear her being so brilliant and inspirational, as she has always been. So... Please come back and tell us more about, you know, um, by Women Built, about how it's doing and your next iteration when the time is right. As honestly, I'm so honoured. It's like my favourite podcast ever Aww. and your <laughs> newsletter. So I'm so thrilled. Thank you for asking me and thank you for giving uh, by Women Built airtime. Oh, no, thank you for coming yeah, and we're huge, so huge much. fans. Yeah. Thanks so much, Saha. Thank you. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Annabelle Rifkin and Emily McMeekin of The Midalt. Our book, I'm Absolutely Fine, is out now. If you like what you hear, please rate, review and subscribe. Hi, my name is Kay Adams and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process. So I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.